Now, before we actually start this morning, I want to talk a little bit about one of the announcements that Chris had mentioned. Uh, I am really excited about an opportunity we have at Southwood this fall. We're going to do something incredible here uh, for, actually, it's five, Chris mentioned six, but it's five uh, away games that the football team has. We are going to host a team breakfast here in the Southwood campus for the whole athletic department at A&M Consolidated. That's football, that's volleyball, that's cross country. 150 student athletes, coaches, and trainers will come over here each of those Friday mornings and join us for breakfast. We will serve them, we will provide, we'll open up the whole place for them. Coach Slaughter and his crew can talk to their teams, give them their game day instructions, but for us, it's a really strategic opportunity. We get to demonstrate to these 150 folks from over at Consol that we care about them, that we want to reach out to them, that we want to serve them and show the love of Christ to them. Our hope is that many of them who don't know Jesus will come here, they'll come into the church to have breakfast, and then it will be easier to come back on a Sunday morning. It'll be easier to join us because they've already entered the building. We're also excited. We're going to have hopefully a lot of you there to begin building relationships with them so that they know some people here at the church. So here is my request of you, especially if you're a person, a man or a woman who was in any way involved in athletics growing up, please consider helping us at least one Friday this fall. The first away game is September 11th. Now, there's a whole schedule. There's a table that Marco is actually helping run this. He will be in the foyer. You can sign up. He has all the dates for you. You can pick one Friday, or you can decide to be here for multiple ones. We'd love to have you for all five of them. Come help us serve these athletes, these coaches, these trainers. Shake their hands. Get to know them. Begin to build relationships with them. Again, we need both men and women. The volleyball team is is females. The cross-country team is half women. So please, come join us Friday mornings. This is an incredible opportunity. We are such a privileged church to get to. I mean, who else gets to do this? We get to host the whole athletics department in our building and serve them breakfast. So please come join us. We'll be there Friday mornings. You can sign up in the foyer after the service. Well, now let's go ahead and get into uh, what we're covering this morning. Let me uh, warn you, this morning's message is going to be a little different. Not that last week's message wasn't different itself. (laughs) This one's going to be different in a different way. This morning, Brian and I at both campuses are not so much preaching, we are teaching. Our messages this morning are not so much sermons, they're more like seminary crash courses on the Bible. Now, the good news is you all are going to get this morning what most people pay $1,200 and spend a semester at seminary getting. You're going to get in 35 minutes for free. So it's a good value. You can thank me later. Uh, We're going to cover a ton of stuff, lots and lots of content this morning. If you're a visitor to Grace Bible Church and you're checking us out, let me caution you. This is not a typical sermon. We're going to open up the fire hose of biblical information and theology this morning. Please come back. Next week, it will be normal. I promise. If this is your second week here, you're thinking, oh my gosh, (laughs) what are they covering this church? Next week, normal sermon, come back. But the reason we've got to teach rather than preach this morning is because we're preparing to study the book of Galatians this fall, and Galatians is a really tough book. If you have ever read Galatians, you probably know Galatians is not an easy book. It is a very tough book. Galatians asks a lot of very difficult questions that assume you know a great deal about the Old Testament. Let me give you a couple examples. Here's a couple questions. Galatians doesn't directly ask this. It implies these questions. First question, let me read you from the book of Leviticus chapter 11. Here's what God says. But whatever is in the seas and in the rivers that does not have fins and scales among all the teeming life of the water and among all the living creatures that are in the water, they are detestable things to you and they shall be abhorrent to you. You may not eat of their flesh and their carcasses you shall detest. So does that mean I can't go to Red Lobster this afternoon? Or does that mean I can go to Red Lobster, but I got to order off the fish portion of the menu. I can't order shrimp or lobster. God said it in the Old Testament. No shrimp, no lobster, can't eat it. So why do we go to Red Lobster? Here's a little more serious example from the Old Testament for you. Um, You may be familiar with what we call the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. Commandment number four, what is it? Thou shalt honor the Sabbath. You shall keep it holy. On the Sabbath, you shall do no work. And if you do work, you will be brought in front of the community. We will pick up rocks and we will stone you to death. That's what they did. Numbers 15, guys caught gathering firewood on the Sabbath day. They kill him. Okay, so, so here's my question for you. Uh, I happened to notice yesterday that Walmart was open. 
And I saw that there were people working at Walmart. And Saturday is the Jewish Sabbath, Friday evening to Saturday evening. So does that mean that next Saturday morning, all of us should get rocks from our garden, drive up to Walmart, and stone to death every blue-vested employee we see? Okay, that's what they did in the Old Testament. Why shouldn't we be doing the same thing? Well, those are the kind of questions that Galatians is all about. It's the question that dominated the early church. The apostles were kept up at night wondering, how does the church relate to the Old Testament? Specifically, how does the Old Testament law relate to us? Do we have to follow the commands of the Old Testament? That's what the book of Galatians is all about. Paul will answer that question for us as we go through this fall semester. But to understand Paul's answer, you've got to understand the Old Testament. You got to understand what the Old Testament is about. Paul will assume you know the Old Testament because when Paul wrote, when the apostles wrote the New Testament, all that the church had as scripture was the Old Testament. It it was their Bible. This part of your, this was all they had. They they knew it, they read it, they studied it, they memorized it. They all knew the Old Testament because that was all they had. So the New Testament, when it was written, it was written out of the context of the Old To understand the New Testament, God assumes that you know the old. You have to start with it. That's why it's on the left of your Bible. You have to understand it if you're going to understand what God says in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Galatians. So let's start with a quick review this morning. What is the Old Testament about? Where does it begin? Well, it begins Genesis 1 and 2 with God creating things. God steps in and he creates. He creates the universe. He creates this planet. He creates light and darkness, land, sea, plants, and animals. And the pinnacle of his creation is us, human beings, Adam and Eve. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. And and in the midst of creating in Genesis 1 and 2, God reveals his plan for us. He reveals his plan for creation. God tells us, number one, his plan is to fill the whole of this creation, all of the earth, with his glory. That's the big idea of the Bible. Why did God create? Why is there something rather than nothing? Because God wants to fill all of creation with his glory. He wants every square inch of this planet to be saturated with the beauty of his love, his righteousness, his power, his grace. He wants every part of this planet to be filled with his glory and here's how he's gonna do it, through us. God created you, he created me to take his glory, the beauty of who he is, his magnificence and carry it throughout every square inch of this planet. To all of creation, we are vessels carrying the glory of God to spread his fame, his wonder throughout creation. That's God's plan for creation. That's why we exist. That's the big idea. But in Genesis 3, right after creation, God's plan is disrupted. It is interrupted when his enemy shows up on the scene. Satan shows up. And he begins to deceive Adam and Eve. He convinces them, hey, quit worrying about the glory of God and worry about your own glory. Promote your own name. Become gods yourselves. That's Satan's temptation. They buy it. They eat the apple, believing that they will become gods, but they become something else. What happens to them? Rather than becoming gods, they become slaves. Slaves of Satan and slaves of sin. In the fall of Genesis 3, mankind relinquishes God's glory. We exchange God's glory for slavery. We are broken. We can no longer carry God's glory throughout the earth because we're fallen. We now follow Satan and sin. We can't represent God. Now you read Genesis 3 and you would expect God's going to show up and he's going to hit the reset button because that's what I do. We blew it. It's our fault. We screwed up. So you'd expect God to show up, just wipe us out, start over, create something new because we blew it. But that's not what God does. Instead, God shows up in Genesis chapter 3 and he begins a process of restoration. God declares, I will not give up on you. God declares, no matter what humans do, he's not going to give up on us. In fact, he is going to fix what we broke What we ruined, he will restore, he will redeem, he will heal so that once again we can carry his glory throughout the planet. Now that's actually the big idea of the rest of the Bible. From end of Genesis 3 to the end of Revelation, the big idea of the Bible is God bringing about restoration so that we could once again carry his glory throughout the earth. God restoring us. That's the big idea. Now how will God do it? How will God accomplish our restoration? How will, we, how will he fix what we broke? Well, he'll do it 
through four covenants. Four covenants that we find all in the Old Testament. Four huge covenants that give structure to all of Scripture. These are the big ideas. These are the big chapters of your Bible. They are how God unveils restoration to the human race. So this morning, what are we going to do? We're going to study the four biblical covenants of the Old Testament. So what I want to ask you to do is pull out from your bulletin this sheet that says the biblical covenants on it. If you don't have a bulletin, please raise your hand right now. The deacons are going to come by and give you one because you need this little chart. So if you don't have a bulletin, raise your hand. They're coming around. Deacons, if you guys will come forward, let's make sure everybody has a bulletin today. Keep those hands up. Once you get a bulletin, you'll see this gray sheet in there. Pull that out, and on one side, the side that says the biblical covenants, we're going to fill in the details on these four covenants this morning. We're going to go through and fill in all these blanks, and what I'm going to ask all of you to do, once we fill this in today, is fold it up and put it in your Bible and keep it with you all during the fall. As we study the book of Galatians, I want you to have this in the Bible. You can even stick it in Galatians so it's marked for you each week. You need this information if you're going to understand Galatians, so keep it with you. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Just so you know, on the back, you get a little freebie, a little timeline of biblical history, so, just so you can see how the whole Bible fits together. Uh, that's just for free. We'll work on the other side this morning, biblical covenants. So we're going to fill those in as we go through this morning. That's our plan. Now, what I should probably do is start with a definition. A lot of you are wondering, what in the world is a covenant? Uh, a covenant is simply a binding agreement between two or more parties. It's like a contract. Now, there's a ton of them in the Bible. You'll see covenants all over the place, but there's four big ones. Four big ones between God and the human race, between God and his chosen people that structure the Old Testament. And those are the four we're going to look at. Now, uh, Genesis chapter 3, we fall into sin. God disciplines Adam and Eve, but he promises restoration. What does the human race do after that? They sin again. So God disciplines them with the flood, but then promises restoration again. So what does the human race do after the flood? We sin again. Tower of Babel. We rebel against God. God disciplines us again. And now God says, okay, if the whole human race, when they're all together, if all they do is rebel against me, then I will start this process of restoration by choosing one of them. I'll look down and choose one man through whom to begin restoration. And I'll do that with a covenant. So we have our first covenant. Just fill in the first blank on your page. The Abrahamic covenant. The man God chooses is Abraham. We name the covenant after him. Now, once you've filled that in, if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 12, we really are going to run through the entire Old Testament today. So you'll have to flip a bunch. Genesis chapter 12 is where we'll begin. We'll start in verse 1, Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." This is the initial promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Let's start filling in your chart for you. What do we find out about the Abrahamic covenant? Well, first of all, we listed a bunch of key passages for you. The first one is this one, chapter 12. God lays out for Abraham a covenant, and we can fill in the first parts of your chart. Who are the parties? Who's involved in this covenant? Well, God, number one. Number two, Abraham. And then number three, Abraham's seed, his descendants. The word seed appears all the time in the Old Testament. It refers to descendants. Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, all down the line. So God, Abraham, and Abraham's seed. That's who's involved in this covenant. And what are the promises of this covenant? Well, there's three that God lists. We summarize them as land, seed, and blessing. Land, God will tell Abraham, I'm giving you the land we call today the Middle East, Israel, plus a whole bunch else there. That is yours. In chapter 15, he'll give specific demarcations. That land belongs to you, Abraham, and to your descendants. Seed, he tells Abraham, you shall always have descendants. Your descendants shall be as numerous as the stars of the sky. You will always have descendants on the planet Earth. And number three, blessing. He tells Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless your socks off. I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give you victory. And through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. Land, seed, and blessing. That's what the covenant's about. Now let's move to the next key passage, Genesis chapter 15. 
All of chapter 15 is about the covenant. It's really significant, but I want to read you two verses in particular, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 15. And he, that is God, took him, that is Abraham, outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he, that's Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, those two verses, incredibly significant. You're actually going to see those in Galatians and throughout the New Testament. Two of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. Why? Because they prove to us that salvation has always been by faith alone. They prove to us, this isn't just a New Testament idea. From cover to cover of the Bible, since the fall in the Garden of Eden, mankind is always connected to God, made right with God, forgiven by God through faith alone. Not through works, not through anything they do, simply through believing. Abraham was born a sinner just like all of us. In fact, we find out in the, in the book of Joshua, before God called him, Abraham was actually an idolater. He worshiped other gods. He was separated from God. God calls Abraham and he begins to reveal himself to Abraham. And in 15, chapter 15, Abraham steps up and he chooses to believe. To believe that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. And looking down and seeing that faith, God says, you are right now forever justified. Justified means declared righteous. He says, Abraham, you were a sinner in danger of hell, worthy of my wrath, but I declare you right now righteous, forgiven. I give you eternal life with me. This is when Abraham enters into an eternal relationship with God through faith alone. Now, that same principle is true for us today. How are we made right with God? Through faith alone. Now, the content of our belief is a little different. Notice there's no reference to Jesus here. Abraham knew nothing about Jesus, nothing about the death and resurrection of Jesus. He just had a little bit of information to believe. We have much more information. We now know that God sent his son Jesus to die for our sins, to die in our place, and then raised him from the dead. And if we believe that truth, that Jesus died for us and rose from the dead, then we are eternally forgiven. God reaches down at that moment in time and he says, you are righteous. He justifies us. This is incredibly significant. You need to understand being made right with God, having eternal life, being forgiven forever, that comes through faith alone. At a moment in time, you say to God, God, I believe that you sent Jesus to die for my sins and then raised him from the dead. When you tell God that, you are justified in his sight forever. You can never lose that. So Genesis 15, that's when Abraham enters into this eternal relationship with God through faith. Next chapter, we won't actually read it, but next significant chapter is chapter 17. In chapter 17, God gives a sign or a symbol of the covenant. It is circumcision. Circumcision is given, you've got a little blank on your page, the purpose of circumcision is to be a sign of the parent's faith in the covenant. A circumcision, that's what you do to your little boy when he's eight, eight days old. It is a sign, a visible demonstration of the parent's faith that God will give this child the covenant. This is why the Jews circumcise their children, because they're saying, we believe God will give us this covenant. Now, Galatians will talk a ton about circumcision, so we'll come back to this. That's what's going on in chapter 17. There's a lot more in the intervening chapters, a lot more we could read, but we'll skip to 26, chapter 26. Now, chapter 26 actually happens after Abraham has already died. It's after his life has ended. God shows up and speaks to his son Isaac. Look with me at the beginning of chapter 26. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands and by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, what happens here? God basically takes all of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. All three are mentioned, land, seed, and blessing. He takes them and he lays them in Isaac's lap. He says, Isaac, these now all belong to you. And what is required of Isaac? Nothing. 
He gets him simply because he's Abraham's son. He's simply a descendant of Abraham, so he receives all of the blessings. And that's what helps us fill in the next blank on your chart. What is the nature of this covenant? It is irrevocable and everlasting promise. Irrevocable and everlasting promise. You'll see that phrase a lot this morning. The Abrahamic covenant is what you might call an I will type covenant. The covenant is all about what God says he will do for Abraham and his descendants. It's, it's got nothing to do with what they do for God. It's all God saying, I will do A, I will do B, I will do C, I will do these things for you for all time. It passes down from one child to the next, Isaac, then Jacob, then Jacob's sons, and all the Israelites up to today. The Jews still own this covenant. God has still promised to them, I will give you land, seed, and blessing. It is yours forever. There's nothing that you can do to lose it. The Old Testament actually proves that to us because Abraham's descendants do a lot of bad stuff. A ton of bad stuff in the Old Testament. And yet every time they do bad stuff, God shows up, he disciplines them, but then he reminds them and reassures them, the covenant still belongs to you. What I swore to Abraham, I will do for you. The Abrahamic covenant is based not on his faithfulness, not on his descendants' faithfulness, but on God's faithfulness. It's an irrevocable and everlasting covenant. There's nothing they can do to lose it. But there is something a little bit odd in the rest of the book of Genesis. If you read through the rest of the book of Genesis, you notice that Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, and then Jacob's sons, uh, these people who have this incredible covenant, they possess this incredible promise from God, none of them get to enjoy it. They own it, it legally belongs to them, but none of them get it. They never get to enjoy it. None of those folks own the promised land. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their sons, they just wander around the promised land. It belongs to other people. They've got lots of bad things going on in the course of their lives. They don't get to enjoy the Abrahamic covenant. Why is that? They, they own it, but they don't get to enjoy it. Why is that? Well, that points out to us the deficiency of the Abrahamic covenant. Great covenant, incredibly gracious covenant had one big hole, one thing it lacked. God had not yet given instruction or enablement to receive the promises instruction or enablement to receive the promises. You see, salvation is always by faith alone. And the eventual fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, that's in God's hands. There's nothing they had to do. God would do that. So salvation always by faith alone, eventual fulfillment always by God, but participation in the promises of the covenant, enjoying the covenant in your lifetime always demands obedience. That's always true in scripture. If you want to enjoy the covenanted blessings of God in your lifetime, you must obey. That's where obedience fits in. You're saved by faith. The covenant will be fulfilled by God. But if you want to enjoy the covenant, you've got to obey God. If Isaac wants to enjoy it, he has to obey it. But there's a problem. At this point in biblical history, how much of the Bible did they have? Zero. None of it. All they had was some stories. They didn't have any of the Bible. They did not yet know what to do to obey God. They didn't have the law. They did not yet know what God required of them. That's the the first problem here. There was no instruction. God hadn't yet told them what they needed to do to receive the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant in their lifetime. But even if they had known what to do, there was a second problem. They didn't have a desire to do it. They were not yet enabled to obey God. Abraham and his descendants were still sinners. They were still broken by sin. By nature, from birth, they still desired to sin rather than to obey God. So even if they would have known what to do, they wouldn't have chosen to do it. Now, you really see that play out in in the rest of the book of Genesis. Jacob, Abraham's grandson, man, he proves to be a deceiver, a really sly guy. He deceives people. And then his sons, his 12 sons, how, how righteous are they? How upright are those guys? Among the the 12 sons of Jacob, first one slept with his father's wife. That's pretty bad. Next two murdered a whole town of people and all of them conspired against Joseph. They're a bad lot. They did not desire to obey God. They did not desire to honor him. So there's this huge hole in the Abrahamic covenant. Two things that are lacking. No instruction. They don't know what to do to obey God and receive the promises and no enablement. Even if they had known what to do, they were not yet changed on the inside. They still desired sin. Okay, so God is going to take Abraham's descendants who are, who are kind of blowing it. They're kind of messing up. 
They're, they're, they're actually, towards the end of Genesis, they're really messing up. They're starting to marry into the pagan cultures around them. So God takes them and he moves them to Egypt. That's where the book of Genesis ends. God moves them to Egypt as a step of protection because the Egyptians don't like shepherds, which is what the Israelites do, so they won't even touch them. They won't get near them. It isolates Abraham's descendants so that they can grow in isolation and become a nation. That's where Genesis ends. Then 400 years after he spoke to Abraham, God shows up again in the book of Exodus and gives a second covenant. During those 400 years, things had not gone particularly well for the Israelites. They were isolated in Egypt, but over time the Egyptians began to hate them and then began to persecute them and then enslave them. The Israelites were in slavery in Egypt and they cry out to God and God sends a deliverer, Moses, to rescue them out of Egypt, take them to the promised land, back to the land God had promised to Abraham and on the way they stop at this mountain called Sinai. And at Sinai, God shows up to give a second covenant that will fix that first deficiency of the Abrahamic covenant. He will provide the instruction they need. So let's fill in your chart. Second covenant, Mosaic covenant, named after the man through whom it's given, Moses, You'll notice on the dates, it's kind of helpful to remember, these four biblical covenants are separated by about 500 years each. So that's very convenient of God for us. You can kind of remember, 2,000, 1,500, 1,500. Those are the big dates of the Old Testament. So let's talk about the Mosaic Covenant. Let's start by turning to the book of Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. By this time in history, Abraham's descendants have multiplied. There's about 2 million of them by now. And they are all camped out in front of Mount Sinai. And God shows up to give them a second covenant. And let's pick up the story in Exodus 19. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people asked together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Now what is it that they need to obey? What are the commandments of the Lord? Look at chapter 20. Just a little bit further on. Then God spoke all these words saying, here are his commands. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Verse seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse eight, remember the Sabbath day. Twelve, honor your father and your mother. What are these? These are the Ten Commandments. This is the table of contents, if you will, for the law of the Old Testament. Like the next hundred pages of your Bible, God is going to reveal his commands to the nation of Israel. Those commands are summarized in the Ten Commandments. That's kind of a table of contents for what follows. Now, we have come up with a name for this whole section of your Bible. All these commands we call the Mosaic Law. You'll see that often in the New Testament. The Mosaic Law the law given through Moses to the nation of Israel. Literally hundreds of commands given from God to his people Israel, telling them what they need to do. That law forms a foundation of this second covenant. Let's start filling in some of the blanks on your sheet. Big passages, Exodus 19 and 20, Deuteronomy 5 and 28 through 31. Who are the parties? God and the nation of Israel, Abraham's descendants, That's who we're looking at, God and Israel. What are the promises? Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. What are the promises of this covenant? Chapter 28, verse 1. Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body, and the produce of your ground, and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd, and the young of your flock. Now, skip down to verse 15. 
But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Do you notice the contrast in Deuteronomy 28? This is a very different covenant than the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, the Abrahamic covenant was an I will type covenant. God said, I will do A, I will do B, I will do C for you, Abraham. I'm going to just do it. The, Abraham, or the Mosaic covenant's different. It's what we might call an if-then covenant. If you obey, then I will bless you. But if you disobey, then I will curse you. And all of the blessings that I would have given you if you obeyed, I will turn them around. I will give you the opposite if you disobey me. That's the idea of the Mosaic Covenant. Blessings for obedience, equivalent curses for disobedience. Okay, that kind of gives us the next blank. What is the nature of this covenant? Well, it is conditional. It's conditional. They have to obey if they want to be blessed. If they disobey, they will be cursed. It is conditional and it is binding. You, 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 if you were born an Israelite, you didn't have a choice whether you wanted to be under the Mosaic Covenant. If you were born a descendant of Abraham, you were under the Mosaic Covenant from birth till death. You couldn't escape. You were bound to it. You were bound to its blessings and its curses. You were bound to its stipulations. Now, how does this covenant relate to the Abrahamic Covenant? Let's kind of tie these together. Well, this one, like we said, it fixes the first thing that was lacking in the Abrahamic Covenant. Now the descendants of Abraham know exactly what they need to do to receive the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. That's why the Mosaic covenant is actually really gracious. Remember Abraham's children, they they have this incredible covenant that was made with their father, but 200 years after Abraham, where are they? They're slaves in Egypt. They're not enjoying the covenant. Why? Because they did not know what to do to obey God and receive the blessings of the covenant. So the Mosaic Covenant is gracious. God is telling them, this is exactly what I require of you. If you want to enjoy the Abrahamic Covenant in your lifetime, then obey the law. That's what the law is about. It's telling them what they needed to do. That's the the blessing of the Mosaic Covenant. That's how it relates to the Abrahamic Covenant. But there still is one huge deficiency. They know what to do, but they don't want to do it. They know what to do, but God hasn't yet enabled them to obey. They know what's required of them, but they don't desire to do it. They're they're not changed on the inside. Their heart is still bent towards sin. They still desire sin, and so they disobey. They know what to do, but they don't want to do it. It's really interesting. When you look at the book of Deuteronomy, let me read a couple verses to you. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11. Moses says of the Mosaic law, For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of your reach. The law is not too hard. They could obey the Mosaic law, but here's the problem. Here are God's words, Deuteronomy 5, 29. Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with with their sons forever. They knew what to do, but they didn't have a heart to do it. They could obey the law, but they would not do it because they didn't desire. God had not yet changed them on the inside. They had an external list of commands, but not an internal disposition to obey it. So the Mosaic Covenant, it provides instruction, but no enablement. And you see that play out. That's really kind of the storyline of the rest of the Old Testament. God's people know what to do, but they don't do it. Over and over again, they choose not to do it. That's the book of Judges for you. God's people choosing not to obey. They don't obey, so God brings the curses of the Mosaic Covenant upon them. They repent, they get down on their knees, they beg God for help. He sends a deliverer, a judge to rescue them. They say, thank you, God. Okay, back to disobedience. And they do it again, over and over again. They disobey and come under the curses of the Mosaic Covenant. Finally, at the end of the book of Judges, the people have had enough. They're tired of getting cursed. But instead of submitting themselves to God's solution, obedience, they choose a human solution. God, give us a king. If we just had a king like every other nation, we would not experience your curses. We would be blessed. We would be strong. Life would be better for us. So God says, you guys blew it, but all right, I'll give you a king after your own heart. Who is that man? Saul, first of Israel's kings. Saul is the king after their own heart. A tall man, good looking, big of stature. They choose him as their first king and he does what? 
blows it. He proves an unfit king. So God removes him and brings in a king after his own heart. Who's that? David. David loves God. David worships God. David obeys God. And as a result, God rewards David with a third covenant. Third big covenant, let's get back to your chart, that God reveals in Scripture is the Davidic covenant. That's number three. About 500 years later, God shows up with the Davidic covenant. Our key passage is 2 Samuel 7, so you can turn there. 2 Samuel chapter 7, we'll start in verse 8. At the beginning of 2 Samuel 7, David really is very faithful. He honors God, and God decides to turn around and honor him with this covenant. So we pick up the story in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish the king, his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, let's fill in your chart. Who are the parties? God, David, and David's seed. David's descendants. So God, David, David's descendants. What are the promises? Well, three key words, house, throne, kingdom that we find in this chapter. What does each of those mean? Well, house, God is basically saying when he says, David, I will give you a house forever. He's he's saying, David, I will give you descendants forever. There will always be a family traced back to David. He will always have descendants on the earth. So that's what house is. David will always have descendants. Throne, that's authority. God saying, David, to your family will always be the authority to rule over the nation of Israel. Kingship always belongs to you and to your lineage. I will never remove that. In kingdom, he's saying, David, you will always have a nation to rule. The Israelites will always exist. The Jews will never be wiped off the face of the earth. Hitler couldn't kill them. Why? Because God promised. There will always be a kingdom of Jews to rule. They will never pass from the earth as a people. So, House, throne, kingdom are the promises of God to David. What is the nature of this covenant? Well, again, it's an I will type covenant. There's nothing laid upon David. It's simply God saying, I will do A, I will do B, I will do C. I will do all these things for you, David. So it is irrevocable and everlasting. God says, I'll give you your house, your throne forever. It will always belong to you. I will never remove it from you. So it's irrevocable and everlasting promise. Now, how does this covenant relate to the other covenants we've studied? Well, to the Abrahamic covenant, it clarifies a promise that was made to Abraham. God said to Abraham, through your seed, through your descendants, I will bless the whole earth. Well, in the Davidic covenant, God refines that seed promise. He defines the lineage. It won't be any of Abraham's descendants. It will be one in particular, one family in particular, David. David and his family are the lineage through whom blessing would come to the whole earth. Just see how how on top of this you guys are. Who is that seed? Son of David who will end up bringing blessing to the whole earth. That's Jesus, Jesus Christ. He's going to be the promised son of Abraham, son of David, who will bring blessing to the whole earth. Good job. Okay, how about the Mosaic Covenant? How does that fit in? Well, these two covenants tie together very closely. The Mosaic Covenant is God's standard of judgment for the Davidic king. Again, remember, uh, this is an irrevocable and everlasting covenant. It always will belong to David's descendants. But what do they have to do to enjoy the blessings of the covenant in their lifetime? They have to obey. Remember, to enjoy the covenanted blessings of God in your lifetime, you always have to obey. Obedience is always required to enjoy the blessings of God. So the Davidic kings, they they had authority over the nation of Israel, but if they wanted to enjoy the blessings of God, they had to obey. 
Psalm 89 makes it specific. It talks about this covenant and said specifically, they've got to obey the Mosaic law. That's, what God, that's how God will judge David's descendants, the kings throughout the history of Israel. He'll hold them accountable to the Mosaic covenant. Now, that's, that's what's required of them. Uh, there is still one big problem, though. This covenant is really gracious, but there's one big thing lacking, one big problem, same deficiency we saw earlier. There's still no desire to obey their obedience is not yet enabled. The, the kings after David who ruled over Israel, they knew what to do, obey the law, but they didn't want to do it. God had not yet changed their heart. They were still bent towards sin. They did not yet have a desire to obey God. As a result, what happens? Well, the kings blow it big time. Right after David, who do we have? Solomon. Remember, we studied the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember how bad Solomon blew it? Whole adultery, or whole, tons of wives, and then idolatry. Well, God disciplines him. He takes from his son ten tribes of the kingdom. Right after Solomon, his son is disciplined for Solomon's sin. Ten tribes of the north break away, form their own kingdom called Israel. Two tribes of the south remain loyal. They form a second kingdom called Judah. So the kingdom splits because of Solomon's disobedience to the Mosaic Covenant. And then over the intervening centuries, king after king blows it. They sin, and their sin begins to accumulate before God, and it smells wretched to God, and he hates this sin. And so he judges the kingdoms. In 722 BC, Assyria, the nation of the Assyrians, show up, and they exile the kingdom of Israel. God says, you guys have sinned so bad, I'm taking you off the land. I'm exiling you. Now, the Davidic covenant was still in effect. Authority belonged to David's descendants, but they had blown it so bad they were going to lose it for a long time. They're taken off the land. Judah sins as well, and not long later, 600 BC, God sends the Babylonians to take them off the land. They're exiled. And then for centuries and centuries and centuries, all the way up till today, there is still no king ruling over the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. Why? Because they disobeyed the Mosaic covenant. They blew it. They disobeyed over and over and over again. So God exiled them. He took authority away from them. That doesn't mean that the Davidic covenant still isn't valid, that it, it still exists. It's still a promise to David that lasts forever, but they're not enjoying it today because they're not obeying God. So that's the deficiency of the Mosaic covenant. Now, again, it ends with, or of the Davidic covenant, it ends with exile. The nations are kicked off the land. Things are looking really bad for them. And the root of the problem, the problem we've seen over and over again, is that even though they know what to do, they don't want to do it. Their heart is not yet fixed. They're not glorifying God. They're choosing sin. So finally, in the midst of exile, in the midst of punishment, God shows up to fix that final problem with a fourth covenant, the new covenant. So that's the last one on your list. New Covenant around 500 BC in the midst of exile, God shows up. And let's turn to Jeremiah 31. Let's learn about the New Covenant for a moment. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now turn to the right in your Bible just a bit, Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. We'll pick it up in verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. 
statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so that you will be my people, and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanliness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Now let's fill in your chart real quick. Who are the parties? Well, this covenant is between God and the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. Remember, the kingdom split. So it's really God and the descendants of Abraham. That's who we're talking about here. God, Israel, and Judah. What are the promises? Well, two big promises here, two big categories of promise. First of all, spiritual enablement. Did you notice? God said, I'm going to fix what you broke. What has been lacking for like all these centuries of human history was they still had a broken heart, a heart that desired sin. So God says, I will reach in and I will fix you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart that is soft towards me. I will fill you with my spirit so that you will walk in my statutes. I will enable you to obey. I will give you the desire to obey. That's the big one, spiritual promises. But notice there's also promises of physical blessing. God restates many of the promises of the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants. He will bless, he will bring prosperity to the land through the new covenant. Again, notice this is an I will type covenant. That tells us that the nature here is irrevocable and everlasting. This isn't based on their obedience. In fact, Ezekiel 36 says it's because of their disobedience that God's going to give them this covenant. Because you guys have been so bad for so long and you have brought shame to my name in this world. I will act. I will give you this new covenant. It's irrevocable. It's not based on what they do. It's based on the faithfulness of God. And it's everlasting. Ezekiel 36 tells us that it is an everlasting covenant. And how does it relate to these other covenants? Actually, let's talk about timing for a second. This, this one is a little bit different than all the other three covenants. It's an irrevocable and everlasting covenant, but unlike the first three covenants, it doesn't begin when it's revealed. All the other three, God shows up, gives a covenant to Abraham, and it starts from that point on. Abrahamic covenant is going on. God shows up to Moses, gives a covenant. From that point on, it's going on. Davidic covenant, God shows up, gives to David a covenant. From that point on, it's going on, but not the new covenant. At this point in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it's just a promise. It's all future tense. God actually says, I will send to you a special person, the Messiah. He will give you the new covenant. So when does the new covenant actually begin? Well, uh, in Luke chapter 22, we are told when it begins. We celebrate the beginning of the new covenant uh, once every four to six weeks here in church when we do what? What is our celebration of the new covenant in here? Communion. We celebrate the last supper of Jesus Christ when he held up a cup of wine and said, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you. When Jesus died on the cross and poured out his blood, that was what brought the new covenant into existence. That's what started the new covenant. His blood is the ceremony. His death is the ceremony that enacts, inaugurates the new covenant. So it begins in 33 A.D., when the new covenant begins. Now, how does it relate to these other covenants? Well, relationship to the Abrahamic covenant, it finally provides enablement to receive the promises. Finally, they will want to obey. Their heart will be changed. They will follow the statutes of God so that they can enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant in their lifetime. Now, how does it relate to the Mosaic covenant? Let me read to you, give you a little foretaste of what's coming in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In other words, the new covenant replaces the Mosaic covenant. When Christ hung on the cross and in the the pouring out of his blood started the new covenant, he did something else. In his blood, he paid for all of the curses of the Mosaic covenant. He took upon himself all past, present, and future breaking of the Mosaic Covenant, all infractions against that covenant, and he died for them. And in that act, the Mosaic Covenant was set aside. On the cross, Jesus took one covenant and replaced it with the other. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise to us. Why could he do that? Well, because we who enjoy the new covenant, we don't need the Mosaic Covenant. Remember what the new covenant tells us. You don't need a tablet of laws to follow because God puts his spirit in you. God gives you his laws within your heart so that you want to obey and you will obey. You don't need the Mosaic covenant. 
You don't need something external to you because God changes you from the inside. So the new covenant, it cancels out. It removes the Mosaic covenant. Everyone who is united to Christ through faith is no longer under the Mosaic covenant. Instead, they're under the new covenant. Finally, relationship to Davidic covenant. Well, just like the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant provides the enablement, the desire to receive the blessings of the Davidic covenant. It fixes what was missing. Finally, let's wrap this up. Now, just fix the diagram there. Notice the Mosaic covenant. It does not keep going. It is not active today. It ends at the cross for all those who place their faith in Jesus. But we do look around at the world today and we notice many of the blessings of the Abrahamic and Davidic and new covenants are being enjoyed by us, but many aren't. Israel doesn't have their king. They don't have their land. The world is not at peace. There's a lot that we look to happen in the future. And so we expect the fulfillment of the covenants in the future, a period the Bible calls the millennial kingdom, when Jesus returns to earth and completely fulfills the covenants. So that's your chart. I hope you filled it in as we've gone. Please, again, stick that in Galatians. Bring it back each week. You'll need that information. Now, I know we've gone really long this morning. Thank you for bearing with me. Let me finish with one application because this isn't a sermon if there is no application for you. Uh, The whole reason to study the covenants ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, is to help us to be thankful. I hope that you'll walk away from here, and I know this was a fire hose of information. I hope you'll walk away from here with a little clear sense of thanksgiving. Um, I, I think we ought to spend some time this week thanking God, number one, that he didn't give up on us after Genesis 3. If it was you or if it was me in charge of the universe, I think either in Genesis 3 or maybe at the flood in Genesis 6 or maybe at Babel in Genesis 9, we would have just hit game over, quit reset this thing. We would have been so tired of it, but God never gives up on us. Second, we should be thankful that he commits himself to fix what we broke. We were the ones who ruined it, but he's the one who at the price of his own son steps in to fix what we broke. And then finally, we should be thankful that all the promises we've been talking about today, they come to us through Jesus Christ. He is the promised seed, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God, who has brought the blessings of the covenants to us. So let's close in prayer and ask God to help us to be thankful for the covenants. Lord God, we do thank you for what we've studied this morning. We thank you that you did not give up on us, but instead committed yourself to fix what we broke. Thank you for your grace shown to the human race for so many centuries. Thank you most of all that you sent your son Jesus to fulfill the covenants in his own blood, to bring hope and restoration to the human race. Thank you for the hope that we have through Jesus. Help us, Lord, to live as people of the new covenant, people who walk with you, who desire to obey your word, who follow you from our hearts, Lord. We pray that we would honor and glorify you in this world as we go. Thank you so much for your son in whose name we pray, amen.